And we'll be in uh, Nehemiah chapter 2, starting at verse 9. When I went to the governors in the region beyond the river and gave them the king's letters, now the king had sent captains of the army and horsemen with me. When Sanabat, the Horaman, and Tobiah, the Ammonite officials heard of it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. When I rose in the night, I and a few men with me, I told no one what God had put, on, put in my heart to give me Jerusalem. Nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I went out by night through the valley gate, to the servant well, and the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem, which were broken down, and its gates which were buried with fire. And I went on to the mountain gate, and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley, and viewed the wall. And when I turned back and entered the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone. For what I had done, I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. And then I said to them, See the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in waste, and its gates are burned with fires. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that we may, may no longer be a reproach. And I told them that the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also the king's words, that he had spoken to me. So they said, Let us rise up and build. Then they set their hands to this good work. But when Sanabat, the Honorite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard, they laughed at us and despised us and said, What is this thing you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? So I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven, heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we his servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right in the memorial of Jerusalem. Brother Mike. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are thankful. We are thankful, Lord, for the opportunity now to turn our attention to the Word of God. And Father, as is always the case, we recognize that this is not just an ordinary book, that we don't come to just an ordinary practice here. We're not just, we're not just sharing something out of a textbook that we might find out uh, in some secular place. Lord, this is different. This is, we come today to the Word of God. And so, I pray today, Father, first of all, for myself, that, Lord, you would fill me with your Spirit. Lord, cleanse me of anything that would prohibit my usefulness today. Help me, Lord, to be clear and accurate and practical. Help me, Lord God, to preach this message just as you would have it preached. And uh, just use it for your glory. And then I pray, Father, for these, uh, your people who are here. And I pray that you'd fill them with your Spirit that they might hear and that they might understand. And that, Lord, the message that you have for us today would speak to all of our hearts and change us and, and do so for the glory of our Savior. Help us, Father, to think about these things. Help us to see the example of Nehemiah and the lessons that we see in his life and in his in this book that's written about him. God, just speak to us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. We have been now for a couple of weeks in a series on the book of Nehemiah, and we continue that today. Today is our third uh, look at the book of Nehemiah. 
Well, the last place we saw Nehemiah was uh, in Shushan. You may remember that in chapter 1 and in the first part of chapter 2. Uh, our hero Nehemiah was in Shushan the palace. He was in the employ of Artaxerxes the king, and he was his cupbearer. We spent a little bit of time on all of those things. In the last couple of lessons, we have listened in on, on uh, some things that took place in his life. We listened in on a conversation that Nehemiah had with his brother Hanani, uh, and there he learned of the dire strait of his people in Jerusalem. And we saw his broken heart over that situation and over their plight. We heard his prayers his concern. We saw his care. Uh, we watched as those prayers became quite specific. In last week's uh, study, we, we came to know that he, he, he came to realize that this was not just something he needed to care about. It was something somebody needed to do something about. The, the walls of Jerusalem were down. His people were in, in reproach and in dire straits. And somebody needed to go. And we saw last week that he came to believe that that someone was him. And then we listened in on a conversation uh, with King Artaxerxes where he, he kind of in a very... Uh, risky move to himself, uh, asked Artaxerxes specifically, will you send me? Will you send me to Jerusalem that I might rebuild it? And that was in chapter 2, in verse number 5. Well, that was then, and this is now. Where we started now, he is no longer in Shushan the palace. He is no longer cupbearer to the king. He is now in Jerusalem. We saw that in verse number 11. And he is now the newly appointed governor of that region with all the authority, all the orders, all the provisions from King Artaxerxes that were necessary in order to accomplish the task of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And so we see Nehemiah here, right at the start, right at the beginning of his project. All of the tears, all of the concerns, all of the caring, all of that stuff that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks, all of the praying, all of the planning, they're in the past. And he's there now, he's in the city, and he can get started now. I considered entitling this sermon today, right at the start, because that's where we are. But for reasons which will become clear in just a minute, I, I settled on another title called See the Distress. See the Distress, and you'll, you'll understand that when we get a little bit further into this thing. But nonetheless, we are at the start. We're right at the beginning, and, and there's much to learn from Nehemiah and from the whole situation right here at the beginning of the, of the project. For example, uh, we need to notice what Nehemiah did right after he arrived. We read about that. After getting settled in and perhaps dealing with the administrative issues that would have had to have been part of becoming a new governor, uh, and surrounding that establishment of that whole world, that was in verse number 11, he took some trusted men. We see that in verse 12. He toured the city under cover of darkness and he looked at the broken down walls. He was riding on a donkey or something like that. We don't know what it was, just as an animal. But he looked at those broken walls. He rode along what remained of them. He rode through the gates. He examined them from outside and from inside, from high and from low, from various angles. He got a good, hard picture in his mind of the state of this project, of the state and the scope of what he was about to undertake. And only then, only after he had seen with his own eyes the scope and the size and the need of what needed to be done, did he mention to the other city officials what needed to be done. That was in verses 16 and 18. He described the problem to them. You'd think they'd have known. They've been living there all along. He described the problem to them, and then he shared his commission from God with them. Verse number 18. And he gave a rousing speech. At least that's the way I... I imagine it took place. It really is only a sentence in our Bible, but I think he must have been a rousing speech. Verse number 17, I think he said, look at the mess we're in. This place is a reproach. God has given us a job to do. Let us build a wall. I think it was rousing. 
doesn't say that in the Bible, but I think it was. And two things happened at that point. And we're going to see these two things expanded upon throughout the rest of the book as we continue this study. The first thing was that the people were rallied to the task that sets the building. Verse number 18. Look at verse number 18. I told them of the hand of my God which had been good upon me and also the king's words that he had spoken to me. So they said, let us rise up and build. And we're going to see all throughout the passage of Scripture, or all throughout the rest of this book, that these people didn't just talk about this. They really were fired up. They really did get this, you know. And they really did rise up and build. And we'll see that they accomplished something great. Matter of fact, in the very next chapter, chapter 3, even if you want to read ahead, you're going to see that they picked up bricks, they started building, and in 52 days, they accomplished the rebuilding of that wall, which was a pretty amazing thing. And so the people were rallied to the task, the people set to building. And the second thing we see that happened as a result of this, and which we're going to see all throughout the book, is in verse number 19. When Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, and Geshev, the Arab heard of it, they laughed at us, despised us, and said, what is this thing that you would do? Will you rebel against the king? And so the second thing was there was opposition. There was opposition. Our good friends, Sanballat and Tobiah, we've seen them a couple of times now. There were other rulers, regional authorities in the area. Uh, they, they, they were a problem from day one. We saw them from the very beginning opposing, and here they see that we see them continuing to oppose. And, and as we continue through the study, we're going to see they're going to keep throwing roadblocks in the path of Nehemiah as he tries to do this. There'll be opposition from outside forces like that. We'll see that there's also opposition that will rise up from within, from Nehemiah's own people. And uh, all these kind of oppositions will occur. And opposition to the work will become a theme that we'll see throughout. So two different things that we're going to see that took place here and that we're going to see throughout. Number one, the people did rise up, the people did build, but number two, there was opposition to them as they did so. But the important thing for us to see today is that the project was underway. He had arrived, he had shared his visions, he had set the people to the task, and the building of the wall was underway. This is good stuff. This is good stuff. And that's the main thing that we see in the passage that we have read. But the question then for us this morning is, can we draw any applications from that? What is there in that that applies to me? This is America. This is 21st century America. What is there that applies to me? And I think there are a few applications that we can make. And I, I want to share three with you. And uh, we won't be long. But consider, if you would, three different applications we might draw from this passage. And one is, is obvious. I, I, you probably can think of it off the top of your head from what I just said. The first one is this. When we undertake a work for God, there will be opposition. That's the first one. When we undertake a work for God, there will be opposition. In verse number 10, we see that when Sandalah the Horonites and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. I like that verse. They were deeply disturbed that somebody wanted to do something for God. That somebody wanted to do something for the children of Israel. It's a theme that's all throughout the Bible. Whenever we undertake a work for God, there will be opposition. You remember when David faced down Goliath? You remember that story in the Old Testament? You remember the story? Uh, the, the, the Israelite army was facing down the Philistine army, and the, these two great armies were facing each other, but this great giant Goliath came out every day and said, I challenge any of you. Come on. I'll take, I'll take, take you on. And they were all chicken. They were all afraid. They were all lily livers. And then little old David came along. And he, he happened to see this. He was but a youth at the time. And he happened to see this situation, and he said to those standing around, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who, who uh, defies the armies of the living God? 
And Saul, the king, said, you just be quiet. You're just a child and you can't handle this. Uh, David's brothers said, what is your problem? Always sticking your nose in where it ought not to be. And so here's poor David just wants to do something for God. And there's opposition. It's a thing that we see all throughout the Bible. Whenever we undertake a work for God, there will be such opposition. In our recent study of the book of Acts, we saw the Apostle Paul. Did we not? Opposition at every step of the way. I don't think there was a single city he entered. Maybe one. I'm thinking there might have been one. Where he did not experience opposition. And so the fact is, when we undertake to do anything for God, we can expect opposition. You know, some people experience that just at the very start. The very start of their walk with Christ. The very, the very fact that they decide that they want to follow the Lord Jesus Christ and, and be saved invites opposition into their life. Family and friends try and dissuade them from their decision. Some of you may have experienced that. Some of you may have never trusted Christ because you feared that very thing. Others might have been saved for a long time and yet continue to experience opposition throughout their life as they try in various ways to serve the Lord. If they just try and stand up for Christ, live for Christ, do something significant for Him and His kingdom, opposition from various directions. Some of our brothers and sisters who are in Islamic lands know about that a lot more than we do. It wasn't too long ago that there was a story, and I, I, I tried to find this in preparation for this message, and I couldn't remember where I'd seen it, but I'm thinking it was in Ohio. There was a story where a uh, young girl, teenage girl, was saved out of Islam. And her father immediately threatened with an honor killing. Do you remember this story? It was in the news, and I think it was somebody in Ohio. She had to flee, and they went to court and all kinds of things. And we think, how amazing, how astonishing that such a thing would happen anywhere, let alone here in America, here in Ohio. Who would have believed it? And yet there are places all around the world where people understand that to just follow Christ, just to be saved, is to invite opposition. Decide to get serious. Decide to stop playing church. Decide that you're going to begin worshiping Christ in real ways with time and talents and treasure and begin serving Him. Not just playing church as so many do, but get serious about it. And, and Christians will find that they're going to experience opposition. And I don't say these things today so that we'll be scared to death. And it's not, it's not meant to frighten or discourage. I think actually it should steal our resolve. I think actually it should fire us up because that's exactly what it did with Nehemiah. He didn't back down from it. He wasn't concerned with it. As we continue our study in the book of Nehemiah, one of the things I like about this guy is he had a backbone of steel. Nothing stopped him. And we're going to see that he faced down Sanballat and Tobiah over and over and over and over again, but he absolutely never let them get to him. And he never was defeated by them or deterred by them. He never feared them. His response in verse number 20 is absolutely classic. He said, I answered them and said to them, The God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore we as servants will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. Basically what he said is, We're doing what God wants us to do. He is with us and you are not. You have no part in it. Hit the road. That was his basic response. And it didn't deter him. The psalm writer said, I am resolved to enter the kingdom. Leaving the path of sin. Friends may oppose me, foes may beset me, still will I enter in. And so the first application this morning is that. When we undertake a work for God, we can expect opposition. The second is similar. When we undertake a work for God, we can expect distractions. Distractions. Look at me at verse number 11. Verse number 11, he said, So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. Now I can't go too far with this thought. 
because it's implied, it's not explicitly stated. But don't you wonder why the Bible says he was there three days? I'm weird about this kind of stuff. I ask weird questions of the scripture. Why is that there? Because I know that every word of the Bible is inspired by God. The Holy Spirit of God wanted that sentence in there. I was there three days. What was he doing during this three days period of time? I think it's amazing. I think it's interesting. He had been on fire to do this thing. He had risked his life and livelihood to approach the king and, and, and to ask for this commission. He's been planning it for months. It's, it's been the cause of hours and days and, and perhaps weeks of prayer and fasting. And now he's finally here. And what does he do? He sits around for three days. Don't you think that's odd? I think it's odd. Well, this is just my conjecture, and it could be completely off base, because half the time I am, I understand this. could be completely nuts. nuts. But I imagine that as the new governor, he got some things that greeted him at the door. I imagine that actually he was greeted at the city limits by other city officials welcoming him to his new role. I can imagine that there was a round of glad-handing and administrative tasks and maybe banqueting and all this kind of stuff as they welcomed the new guy into town. Can you imagine that? I imagine there, there was a laundry list of transitional tasks that had to take place because here's a new governor coming in taking over the governorship of this town in this region. And you'd say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, nothing's wrong with that. None of those things would be evil. None of those things would fall into the category of something sinful or wrong. They would all, I think, fall into the category of distractions. And in my experience, and perhaps yours, we've probably all seen more believers fall away to distraction than to outright opposition. Not necessarily evil things. Just things that distract us and take away our attention. Paul said of Demas in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he said, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. I've always read that verse, and I've always thought that that meant Demas had fallen into some sin, but I, I don't know. Maybe he did. Or maybe he was just distracted by all, all the things that this world has to offer that so pull at us all the time. There are so many things that trip up Christians. So many things that keep us from serving God to our full potential. And oftentimes they're not sinful or wrong in and of themselves, but even good things can distract us. And anything that distracts us from what God wants us to be doing is something we need to be careful of. So the second application. Again, can't be real berserk about it because I'm just kind of thinking it's in there. But when we undertake a work for God, we can expect distractions. And finally, the last and the most important the most important application I'd like to make from this passage is this. We need to see the distress. We need to see the distress. Nehemiah could not begin this project until he looked at what needed to be done. Until he had determined the scope, until he had gone out and checked out the whole situation. And so you read there in the middle of the passage that we read, you read where he settled up, he took some, some trusted guys with him, and during the cover of night, he looked things over. I picture him, don't you? I picture him riding along in the darkness, his donkey or horse or whatever it was, picking its way through the rubble of the walls. I picture him going along them on the inside and looking with sorrow at the demolished mess that was there. I picture him dismounting at each gate because all the gates were burned with fire. It says I can picture him coming to a gate and getting off and picking up charred pieces of wood and looking at it. I picture him 
urging on his donkey as it struggles to pick its way. I, I see him climbing up the high ground so he can look down and get a better view. Can you see all those things in there? It kind of says that. Kind of says that. I see him kneeling down at the foundations, maybe. Picture him there looking at that and trying to see, is there anything left? Is there anything on which we can rebuild? He's looking. He's seeing. See, he had to do that before he could start to build. He had to see the distress. And we need to see the distress that we are in, or we're never going to accomplish anything for God. True of any endeavor, is it not? In my uh, secular career, I've done a little bit of project management. Some of you may know a little bit about that. Some of you may have done that. In project management, there's, there is a, a, a portion of that process that involves looking at the current state of a thing. You can't do something new until you've figured out what you've already got. And that's what he was doing, was it not? He was looking at it, determining the current state. Jesus talked about the same thing in Luke chapter 14 when he said, Which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? We need to see the distress we are in. You know, you may be here this morning, and you may know in your heart of hearts that you've never made a decision for Jesus Christ. You may have been told that you need to be saved. You may have heard it many, many times before. And you may have turned away and said, you know, it's just not for me. I just don't, I just don't see that I have the need for that. How do we get you to see the distress that you are in? You see, nobody can get saved until they see that. I have a dear friend, a dear friend with whom I have discussed the gospel on multiple occasions. And this particular person in unguarded moments has said to me, the problem is, I just don't believe I'm lost. I just don't think I need a Savior. Maybe this morning that's you. This person walks through life basically with walls that are broken down, with gates that are burned with fire, and does not see the distress that he is in. I read one time where Media Mogul Ted Turner, and I've probably shared this quote with you before, but Media Mogul Ted Turner once said, and I have to paraphrase it because I don't remember the exact quote. I don't have it written down. But he basically said this. He said, you know, I'm told that Jesus died for me. He didn't need to do that. I didn't ask him to do that. And I didn't want him to do that. You see, here's a man who goes through life with walls broken down all around him. He does not see the distress that he is in. Until we view the broken walls of our life, we cannot fix them. Nobody can fix them. Until we see how infinitely great is our need for the Savior, we won't turn to Him. Until you see how lost you are, you will never recognize your need to be saved. We need to see the distress we're in. The Bible says all of sin becomes short of the glory of God. You know that speaks to you. That speaks to you. If you've never trusted Christ, that's you. The Bible says there is none righteous, no, not one. This person who says to me, I don't have a need of a Savior, I'm... I just don't believe I'm lost. What does he do with that verse? None righteous. No, not one. Another verse, Isaiah chapter 64 says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our, unrighteous, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Isaiah 64, that basically is saying the very best we are is dirty. The very best we can be is filth. We need to see the distress that we are in. Proverbs chapter 20, in a rhetorical question we all know the answer to, says, who can say, I have made my heart clean. I am pure from my sin. We all know the answer. None of us. None of us. Jesus was once asked 
What is the greatest commandment, Master? And he replied, Love God with everything you have and love people as much as you love yourself. Now I'm paraphrasing that. You know I'm paraphrasing that. But isn't that basically what he said? Love God with everything you have. Well, let that phrase burn into your brain for a minute. If you're wondering whether or not you really are lost and whether or not you really need to be saved. The very most important command, the number one, is love God with everything you have. Because you think, I can't do that. I confess it to you today. I'm a rotten sinner. I can't do that. There are days that I don't love God like I should. And I don't think you're any different than me. I can't do it 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Can you? I can't do it every minute. He said that's the most important commandment. When I see that verse, I see walls broken down. I see gates burned with fire. I just see the, I see the distress. that we're in. I see me. Do you see yours? And so we need to see that distress or we're never going to be saved. If you're lost and if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, if you don't have any hope of going to heaven someday in your mind right now, in that quiet place where nobody else can see what you're thinking, if right now you're sitting there and you're saying, you know what, I know, I live in a place where the walls are broken down and the gates are burned with fire. My life is distressed. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the answer. And He can fix it. We need to see the distress we're in. You may be here this morning and you may be saying, you know what, I, I know in my heart that I am saved. I don't have any question about that. I remember a time when I came to believe that I was lost. I remember that time when I saw that. I remember that time when I called upon the name of the Lord and, and I would say, I, I believe. You might be saying that. And maybe you do believe. Maybe you do. Maybe you are convinced of your salvation, but somewhere along the line, somewhere along the line, you got off track. And if you look at yourself right now, you have to admit to yourself that, you know, your faith used to be more than it is now. It used to be more than just words. You used to include serving, doing. Maybe you used to teach, or maybe you used to play an instrument, or maybe you used to sing, or maybe you used to be a deacon, or maybe you used to be a Sunday school teacher, or maybe you used to witness, or maybe you used to read your Bible every day, or maybe you used to come out and work at the church on church work days, or maybe you used to tithe, or, or maybe you fill in the blank. Your Christianity could be defined by the words used to. Used to. Somewhere along the line you got off track and now your Christian life is buried in rubble. You find yourself surrounded by broken down walls and gates. You see, we need to see the distress we're in if we're ever, ever going to make it right. Some of you might be saying this morning, yeah, that's me. I'm not going to say it with my out loud voice, but it is me. I admit it. What do I do about it? I want, to, I want to share with you a passage of scripture, and I'll share this, and I'm almost done. It's in Second uh, Kings chapter 6, the book of that. What do you do about it if you're one of those used to Christians? Second Kings chapter 6. Let's just read the first few verses there. It's a story about Elisha the prophet. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 1. The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now the place where we dwell with you is too small for us. Please let us go to the Jordan and let every man take a beam from there and let us make there a place where we may dwell. So he answered, Go. Then one said, Please consent to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head fell into the water and he cried out and said, Alas, Master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Where did it fall? And he showed him the place. 
So he cut off a stick and threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. I heard Dr. Tom Malone one time preach a message on this very passage, and he had an interpretation of this passage that has never, I've never been able to get it out of my brain. You see what happened there was they were cutting wood, and, and the axe, the head of the axe flew off and went in the water. And it was a bad thing because it was a borrowed piece of equipment, and it was expensive, and so it could have been bad. And Elisha the prophet said, where did it go in? He pointed it to a stick in there, and it floated up, and he grabbed it, and it was a wonderful miracle. Dr. Malone says, you know what that is a picture of? That is a picture of a Christian who has fallen away from God. That is a picture of the Christian who has maybe this used to type of Christianity, where I used to do this, I used to do that, and now you look at your life and the walls are down and it's all messed up. He says, how do you get back where you were supposed to go? How do you get back to what you once were? And he said, that's a picture of it. And he said, you can just imagine, can you not, Elisha saying to him, where did you lose it? Where did it go in? And he, he said, you could just picture the man pointing at the water. It went in right there. And Elisha said, where? Show me exactly where. Right, exactly where it went in. You went in right there. And Elisha said, right there is where you'll find it. And it came back. And the picture was, if we're going to get things back the way they once were, we have to go back where we first lost it. Where we first lost it. Where we first turned away, you know, the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's how we met him in the first place, isn't it? And that's how we get back when we have fallen away. Kneel once again at the foot of the cross and confess and pray as you once prayed. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Pray as David prayed, Lord, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. You can do that. And he will restore you. James said, draw near to God. And he will draw near to you. But none of these things can happen. Whether we're talking about the lost person who needs to be saved or the saved person who needs to get back once where they, where they once were, none of it can happen until we first look at the wall, look at the distress that we're in and admit it. And say, yep, the walls are down. It's rubble. It's rubble. I want to conclude with what could possibly have been a fourth point, but... I'm just, I'm just going to mention it. A fourth point, or a fourth application from our text, and that is this. You have to start. Somebody had to start, or none of this would have happened. Somebody had to exercise leadership and get things started. In this case, it was Nehemiah, right? Somebody had to. What had the governors and the rulers and the princes and the, and the priests and all of them that were there? What have they been doing? They've been standing around amongst this rubble all this time, and nothing had been happening. They've been living, apparently, completely unconcerned amongst these broken-down walls. No interest whatsoever. And then Nehemiah said, Let's build it! And they said, Amen. We're with you. When one stepped up and started the ball rolling, they all jumped online. And of course, we know that speaks of leadership. We could spend all kinds of time talking about leadership. This, this book is one of the most wonderful leadership guides you're going to find. Uh, you need to have leadership. It's true in every aspect of life. It's true in our military. It's true in our politics. It's true in sports. Cleveland sports could understand that a little bit better. It's true in all kinds of things. It's true in churches. One person said everything rises and falls on leadership. And it's true. Somebody had to start this thing. But in, the, in, in, in what we're talking about today, that somebody has to be you. If you want to get right with God, it has to be you. If you want to get saved, it has to be you. Nobody's going to come along and help you. You have to see the need 
and you have to respond. I need to be saved. I don't even know what it means to be saved, preacher. You're the one who has to deal with that. You're the one who has to say, Jesus saved me. You're the one who has to do it. You have to get it started. And so my friend this morning, maybe if you're here today and you've never made a decision for Christ, will you see that today? Do you see your need? Do you see that you're lost? Do you see that you're undone? Do you see that you're on your way to hell? Do you see it? The walls are down. You can't be saved until you see it. Jesus wants to save you. He wants to rebuild the walls. But you've got to see the need. Will you do that today before it's too late? A Christian, Christian, those of you who are here today, and maybe you have to admit that you've fallen into that used to category. Maybe though once you were on fire, you're not cold and indifferent and uncertain. Will you look at your situation? Will you look at where you are? Will you see that the walls are down? And will you turn back and get things right again? I think the greatest application from this particular part of Nehemiah is we have to see the distress we're in. Nothing else happens until we first see it.